I want to share a story that appeared in the Washington Post on August 11th, 2007. And it goes like this. He emerged from the metro at the plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash can. By most measures, he was nondescript. A youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money. Swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic and began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on a Friday. For the next 45 minutes, the violinist performed six great musical classics. During that time, 1,097 people passed by. No one knew that the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the world's leading classical musicians who fills concert halls. On this Friday morning, Bell played on one of the most valuable violins ever made, a Stradivarius, valued at $3.5 million. The train station provided good acoustics for his performance, and his beautiful music filled the morning air. Over the time that he played, seven people stopped to listen for at least a minute. Twenty-seven people gave money. And just as a frame of reference, Bell was accustomed to getting paid $1,000 per minute in a concert. This day, in total, he received $32.17. At the end of each piece, there was no applause, just silent indifference. The master musician was ignored. People walked past musical glory without giving a second glance, with the exception of two people. The first was a postal worker named John, who had learned the violin as a youth. He recognized the quality of Joshua Bell's performance and stood enjoying it from a distance. 
Then there was a woman named Stacy. Stacy had seen Belle in a concert three weeks earlier, and she recognized him. She had no idea what was going on, but whatever it was, she wasn't about to miss it. She moved closer, positioning herself front and center. She had a huge grin on her face, and she stayed until the concert was over. Later, Stacy told the reporter, it was the most astonishing thing I have ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing in rush hour and people were not even stopping, not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I was thinking, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? For the most part, Joshua Bell was completely ignored. Only a few gave their attention and experienced the amazing performance by this master musician. And at another time, long ago, at another place, Far away, only a few would experience something so amazing that it would change their lives and impact all of humanity. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, which for all practical purposes is a God-inspired investigative report. And in the first chapter of his Gospel, Luke shared what he learned through his investigation regarding the events surrounding what we know as the Christmas story. If you recall... Luke told us about the birth announcement given by the angel Gabriel to a couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth, who being well past their childbearing years, maybe in their 80s, maybe in their 90s, were going to have their very first child. A miracle son named John, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And we know him as John the Baptist. Then Luke told us about a second birth announcement, given six months later, again by the angel Gabriel, this time to a young virgin girl around the age of 14 from a backwoods town called Nazareth. 
her name was Mary. And she learned that God had plans for her. Plans that would dramatically change her life. She would deliver the long-awaited Messiah whose name would be Jesus. This morning, as we continue, I want to take a traditional approach to the Christmas story. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. So these first five verses give us the setting to this very familiar Story And once again, Luke drives home the point that this is not a fairy tale. It's not a fictional story. It's investigative. It's historical. It is based on real historical facts. Here in his report, Luke introduces us to Caesar Augustus. His birth name was Gaius Octavius, or Octavian. And he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, who had been assassinated some 25 years earlier. After his assassination, the empire was divided. There was some serious infighting that occurred. But Octavian emerges as the emperor of Rome. And he becomes the most powerful of all the Caesars. He ruled the known world. He set up a centralized government. He regulated trade and commerce. He began all sorts of building programs and projects. And under his rule, the military was unmatched. 
And during His reign, Rome was at peace. Well, during His reign, Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken for the purpose of collecting taxes. This was done every 14 years. It was a means of governmental control. And as was the case, each Jewish male had to return to the city of his forefather to record his name, his occupation, his property, and those in his family. We're told that while this census was taken, Quirinius was in Syria, which at that time was a Roman providence that also included the region of Judea. Now I want to point something out while we're here. Some English Bible translations like the one I use, say that Quirinius was the governor, while other translations say he was governing. In this case, I think governing is a more accurate word, for history suggests that Quirinius was on a military mission for Caesar Augustus. He wasn't the governor just yet, but he was governing. He was providing leadership so as to bring the providence of Syria under the direct control of Rome. So Luke drops the names of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius as a historical point of reference, during which time a decree was given that a census be taken. And as a result, Joseph, along with a very pregnant Mary, traveled some 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register as they were ordered. That's where their forefather, King David, grew up. That's the setting. A setting that involves real people at a real place during a real time in history. At that time... Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus was ruling the known world. But make no mistake, God was still on the throne. And all along, he was setting the stage for a promise that he had given 700 years prior through the prophet Micah, and it goes like this. But as for you, 
Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Caesar Augustus didn't know anything about God, but he unknowingly becomes a pawn in God's hand as God used the emperor's command to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill the promise that the Messiah would be born there. Then beginning with verse 6, Luke tells us what happened next. He says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In these two verses, Luke gives us the details of the Lord's birth. Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem to register for the census just like so many others had done. And as a result, there was no place to stay. There was no room for them anywhere. Now here's the question. Did they not have family there? They may have. They're in the city of their ancestors. They're in the city of their forefathers. But remember, Joseph and Mary are only engaged, betrothed. And Mary is very pregnant. And her condition before her wedding day would be considered a disgrace in that culture. So maybe they couldn't reach out to family in the absence of vacant rooms. And therefore, as tradition suggests, they likely had to stay in a dark and dingy limestone cave where animals were typically sheltered. We are told she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. Nothing else. 
No one in the city of Bethlehem knew that the Messiah had just entered their world. No one. And speaking of no one, it also appears that Mary had no one to help her. There was no doctor. There was no midwife to help with the birth. Her mom wasn't there, nor were any family and friends to support her. I assume that Joseph was there, but I'm not sure what kind of help he was. And I say that only because we are told it was Mary who gave birth, It was Mary who wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloth. And it was Mary who laid him in a feeding trough. Mary did all that. Surprisingly, this is how the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords was to come into this world. Not privileged, not pampered, but lowly. Into a world of lowly people that God desired to save. It's surprising. But the surprises are not over. And beginning with verse 8, this is what we are told. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Go figure. I just added that, not a hair tick. Okay. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among people with whom he is pleased. Isn't it amazing that when God chose to announce the birth of the Messiah, he didn't inform the rich 
or the famous or the powerful of that day. God didn't share the news with the religious leaders. It was not given to the priests. It was not provided to the kings and to the dignitaries. It was not given to the elite or to the popular. Rather, the announcement was only given to a few. Shared with shepherds who were tending their flocks at night. And from a cultural point of view, that was all wrong. It was all wrong. And let me explain. Throughout Israel's history, Shepherding was a respected and noble profession. Abel was the first to have this job. Followed by Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. All significant figures in the Old Testament. In fact, God calls Himself the Good Shepherd. But by the time we come to this story, in this culture, shepherding had lost its luster. Shepherds were now considered among the lowest class of people at the bottom of the social ladder, at the bottom of the rung. They were the poor, the forgotten, the broken, and the hopeless. They were outcasts. The Talmud, which is a collection of written interpretations by Jewish rabbis, says this. No help, no help is given to heathen or shepherds. No help is given to heathen or shepherds. Shepherding had changed from a respected family business to a despised occupation. They were the last people anyone would think God would take notice of. According to Jewish religious law, these men were considered unclean and habitual sinners. Their line of work prevented them from worshiping at the temple because somebody had to be with the sheep 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. When everyone else was going to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple or to participate in one of the annual feasts, 
They were out in the fields watching over the sheep. Ironically, although they were providing sheep for sacrifices of worship, they were not allowed in the temple themselves to worship. Their sheep were, but they were not. They were outcasts, always moving from place to place like gypsies, trying to find good pasture, looked upon as anything but worshipers of God. And yet, God chose only these few to hear this birth announcement from heaven. Only these few. So the shepherds are out in the fields watching their sheep at night, and poof, an angel... Maybe Gabriel again. I think he's the angel of birth announcements, so I'm pretty sure it's Gabriel. Unexpectedly appears in God's glory. And what do you suppose these guys are thinking? Well, given their reputation, they're probably thinking one of us has done something wrong this time. One of us has gone too far and God has sent an angel to take care of business. Somebody's going to die tonight. Somebody's going to die. They were terrified. But the angel tells them not to be afraid, but to listen but to listen because he has some amazing news for them and for all people. A Savior. A Savior has been born. And we know, and we know with that one single word, Savior, we must connect the Lord's birth to His death. We have to. Jesus was born to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. That's why He came. That's why He was born, to live a perfect life among us. To reveal the true character and nature of God in a world that had Him all wrong. To love the unlovable. And then to prove the full extent of His love by offering Himself as a once and for all sacrifice for sin so that those who believe might be saved. A Savior 
has been born in Bethlehem. And the shepherds were given a sign as to where they could find him. He's wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a feeding trough. And my guess is that Jesus was probably the only one that night lying in a feeding trough. And if you really think about that, no other king ever, anywhere, would be lying in a feeding trough. Then, as if the appearance of one angel wasn't enough, the place explodes with an army of angels, maybe thousands, and the dark night is turned into a massive worship service as the angels praise God. For these shepherds, for these few, to see what they saw and to hear what they heard had to be unimaginable and overwhelming. And it's not over. Beginning with verse 15, Luke continues and he tells us this. When the angels had gone away from them, into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lie in a manger, in a feeding trough. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at what things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So the shepherds don't waste any time, and they say, let's go right now to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened. Not to see if it's true, how could they after what they've experienced, right? But let's go see the Savior. And just as the shepherds were told, sure enough, they find Joseph and Mary and a baby lying in a feeding trough. The shepherds, the outcasts, tell Joseph, and Mary, all that had happened to them. And then they left worshiping and praising God on their way back to the fields. Sharing the good news to all who would listen that this child was born 
in Bethlehem. They were brought closer to God, literally, changed by this child. I want to share a story from a woman who was brought closer to God by a child and an outcast. And it goes like this. We were the only family with a child in the restaurant. I sat Eric in a high chair and noticed everyone was quietly eating and talking. Suddenly, Eric squealed with glee and said, Hi there! Hi there! He wiggled and giggled at an old man wearing a tattered rag of a coat. His pants were baggy with a zipper at half-mast and his toes poked out of would-be shoes. His shirt was dirty and his hair was uncombed and unwashed. We were too far to smell him, but I'm sure he smelled. His hands waved at my baby, and he said, Hi there, baby! Hi there, big boy! I see you, buster! My husband and I didn't know what to do. But Eric continued to laugh and say, Hi there! Hi there! Our meal finally came. And the old man began shouting across the room, Do you know Patty Cake? Do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows Peekaboo! No one thought the old man was cute. My husband and I were embarrassed. But Eric, on the other hand, was running through his repertoire of tricks, all of which were admired by that old man. We finally got through our meal. My husband went to pay, while Eric and I headed for the door. But the old man was poised between me and the door. I uttered a prayer. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. As I drew close to the old man, I turned my back trying to sidestep him and avoid any air he might be breathing. As I did, Eric leaned over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. Before I could stop him, Eric had propelled himself from my arms to the man's. Eric, in an act of total trust and love, 
laid his tiny head on the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime, pain, and hard labor, gently, ever so gently, cradled my precious baby and stroked his back. The old man rocked Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding voice, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. I received my baby, And the man said, God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I ran to the car. My husband wondered why I was crying and saying, My God, my God, forgive me. The ragged old man unwittingly had reminded me To enter the kingdom of God, we must become as little children. In this Christmas story from Luke, only the shepherds, the outcasts, those who weren't even allowed in church to worship. Only these few were let in on the secret and blessed by a child lying in a feeding trough. Why? Why did God do it this way? Well, I think by doing it this way, by choosing the shepherds of all people, God was saying something important to each of us. Something we cannot ignore. And it's this. Jesus came for you and me. You're not too low, too insignificant, too unimportant, too worthless, too forgotten, too lost, or too anything for God to love you to search for you in your darkness, to find you, to draw close to you, and ultimately to save you. I think that's why He did it this way. God made a statement. God made a statement that no matter who you are, He's crazy about you. 
He's crazy about you. And He invites you to seek Him out. So that you might enter into a loving relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this this time in Your Word. A very familiar passage. Lord God, I I pray that you You were pleased in how we handled Your Word. How I handled Your Word. And Lord, I pray that Your Word was a blessing to those who heard it. But more so, Lord, I pray that it would change lives. And not just in here, but maybe more so once we walk out the door. Help us to be a different people. Help us, Lord God, to follow You and to love You with all of our hearts. You've done so much for us. It's the least we can do. May You be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, well, Jesus was talking to some religious folk, religious leaders actually, in Matthew chapter 7. And in one particular passage, he was describing two roads. Two roads. Each road had a gate, but two roads. One road, and I'm going to take some liberties here, okay? So don't chase me out here as a heretic. I'm taking some liberties and warning you. One road he described as being wide. Like an interstate. It's a wide road. A lot of people are on it. But Jesus said on this road, people are going the wrong way. They're going the wrong way. The people on that road, on the wide road, on this interstate are the ones who ignore God? Are the ones who live as if He doesn't even matter? Are the ones who have rejected the salvation He offers through His Son? It's a wide road. And Jesus says it leads to destruction. We want no part of that. And then he describes this other road, and it's a narrow road. Again, taking some liberties. I think sometimes the road is rocky and bumpy. Seems like it's uphill a lot. Maybe like a roller coaster. But it's a narrow road. 
right? And he said, only a few, only a few are on that road. But it's a road that leads to righteousness. Only a few. And Jesus might ask, does only a few include you? Does only a few include you? Jesus loves us so much. And he proved just how much he loved us by going to a cross. What more did he have to do to prove how much he loved you? What more? What else could he have done to prove how much he loved you? He showed his love for you at the fullest extent possible. There's no other greater expression of love. He loves you that much. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know him. You have not experienced that love. Please, I beg you, give me an opportunity just to talk with you. I will come to your house. I will stalk you if you let me. (laughs) But give me a chance just to share his love with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Let me know that too. Or maybe you just need prayer. I've already prayed for folks this morning. Maybe you just need prayer. I would ask however the Lord moves you this morning, just be obedient and just respond. Whatever that might look like, just respond. Larry?